0: Uh, I have these issues every week with him, Hugh. Can you not? Can he hear me? Can you hear me slagging him off? Yeah. (laughs) It's like 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 Don Don Goodman always does this. He gets the point, right? You're ready to record and then he'll go, oh, wait a minute. I can't hear you. What now? Collingham
1: Colts are all technically deficient. Is he still having uh, microphone trouble?
2: Yeah, it's the connection. The connection's dodgy. I've been to buy a... I went to a shop. To buy a replacement, and said to the guy, "I need a USB cable." And, he went, and I, but, but I said, "Not like the really modern USB cable; it's the slightly fatter one." And he went, "What's it for?" And I went, "A microphone." And he went, "A microphone!" As <laughs> so it was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. That you might need a microphone, um, but look, he, he, all I could get was that. It's all the USB fixtures, but it's really, <laughs> but it's really short. So it, it, that obviously doesn't work either. Great.
3: That is the kind of thing you get from a Hong Kong street market. What
1: it's I just... will need
2: is a Curry's PC world.
1: Have you heard of there's this thing, Rory, called Amazon. <laughs> so you type Amazon no, into but your search I, browser. You're,
2: you're, it's They'll great send you, you a cable. Like it's really great world, that at 12.15 on, on a Tuesday, you're in such a mood to be a smart-ass, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what type of cable it is. That's the problem. I don't know what the exact US, what the name of the USB cable is.
3: I think either one of us could help you if you showed us.
1: Yeah. I might even have one. Yeah. I can't guarantee you next day delivery. It's like he but... wants
0: it to be a
3: problem.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Mm. He's, he's going he's gonna to drop a bombshell on us.
3: Makes him look important. Somebody, is it a, a problem else? if
0: I didn't watch the Champions League final? Don't um, no. ask me any specific questions about the Champions League final because I didn't watch it. I'm watching The Fall on Netflix, which... Is better, which is available on demand.
3: Yeah, not at all, yeah. I, I, uh, I have another Amazon-style conversation.
0: Finals. No, 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 no. I'd rather watch the fall than the Champions League final. Go What's figure. the fall about? Uh, it's it's a serial killer with Gillian Anderson from Text Files. Yeah, <laughs> she's the uh, she's the uh, the blonde sexy uh, detective. It's in Belfast, and it's it's very good. They just caught him, but he's playing that. I'm not speaking to anyone game. But it, it'll, they'll get him. They'll get him in the end. He's not got a future in podcasting. It's very good. The fall. I watched the, the Europa League final. I didn't watch I, that either. I
2: split-screened with the Europa League final and the seventh episode of the first series of The Bridge. Can you can you do that, split-screen? I, I no, can. No, no, it's
0: just easy if I just have the fall on because I don't want to watch the Champions League final. So what's the point in split-screening? But it, it,
2: it was it was a very strange experience. It was quite
0: a tense episode of The Bridge. And I... Mm. I kind of, in
2: my mind's eye now, Ramella Lukaku was in some way implicated in what happened.
1: <laughs> well, well, he was guilty in many ways. Yeah. 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 I'm just wondering, Rory, how do you read the Danish subtitles and translate Robbie Savage's co-commentary at the same time? That's uh, quite what, a simultaneous task.
2: The, the Europa League final was on mute.
3: Split screen watching of drama slash uh, football is, is pretty much what happens to me every time there's a football game on. So this is, this is something that is new to you, Stephen?
1: No, no, I watched an episode of Billions whilst uh, watching the second Champions League semi-final simultaneously. All right, much
3: like in the way that you always broadcast on this podcast whilst eating. Mm. Yes, a a chronic multitasker, Stephen (laughs) White.
1: I am eating some of what I'm bribing the children with to leave me alone, which is mowam joysticks
3: all right Mm. so you've chosen not only food but food that will remain within your mouth for probably about 20 to 25 minutes Mm. Stephen,
2: is that is that a short-term gain long-term pain thing given that you are pumping your kids full of sugar I
1: always take the short-term option, Rory. Right, yeah. You should know that.
3: This is Set Piece Smelly, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe, Quarantini, Rory Smith, Ovaltini, and Stephen Wyeth, Pornstar Martini. The food <laughs> is being enjoyed by Stephen, a Mowam.
1: No, 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 no. Allow me to make you jealous with the actual food this week, because I have been to our old stomping ground. I have been to the deli in the middle of Didsbury for a stupendous bacon butty and two of the finest cappuccinos available in the south of Manchester. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer picked up half the cheque. So (laughs) everybody's happy, except for the Chancellor of the Exchequer.
2: He's Uh, quite happy. He wants to be Prime Minister.
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, Stephen is
3: eating out to help out pretty much only himself. The football is chinch, Do you know what we're talking about today?
0: Um, Was there quite an important football match played recently? Watched by four of us. (laughs) Mm, Was there? Yes, we are talking about
3: the Champions League. While the that's Premier League it, has it. aggressively claimed the intellectual property on our annual Hot Takes and Takeaways episode, we can always steal the idea, but not the name. So how about, as an alternative, the Champions League? That was fun. Let's not do it again. Similar lukewarm takes and takeouts uh, are to come, with no legal uh, issues arising from that. You can get in touch with the podcast. At gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Some brief bear news. Chris Tranter has emailed. Hello, good friends. After listening to the latest podcast and the further discussion of bears, it reminded me of this picture that I took and sent to you in Japan whilst hiking around Mount Fuji. I don't speak Japanese, but I feel the picture was instructing me to run like the wind when chased by an angry bear. Keep up the excellent work. Chris, I will now text to you live the picture sent by Chris to us, which I've already sent to Stephen.
0: Make sure you send it on the WhatsApp group that I'm involved in and not the one that I'm not involved in, yeah? It's a live text. Live WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Live. How
1: big, how big do you think this bear's going to be? That is a cartoon child being chased by a cartoon bear. That's is not it, scary.
2: Is it a cartoon child being chased by a cartoon bear or is it a loving couple <laughs> locked in an embrace? <laughs>
0: Chinch might have to comment on that last one. (laughs) Please, please, God, tell me it's a bear and a child.
3: Uh, We will tweet the picture at Set Piece Menu on Twitter over the coming days for sure. Uh, Roseanne Groot is in Holland and gets in touch following our pep talk episode last week. Dear socially distanced Andy, Hugh, Steve and Rory, thank you for providing the necessary distraction from my own exhaustion during my daily runs through the forest. She mentions no bears. It's always slightly awkward when I burst out laughing because of one of your perfectly timed jokes at the expense of each other and someone who who is walking their dog nearby looks at me as if I've lost it I'll take that any day of the week because your podcast is making me forget that I hate running you should be getting podcast awards just for that to be honest she said well any will do while listening
1: subcategory that would be
3: (laughs) while listening to SPM 192 and marvelling last week at another Manchester City quarterfinal exit the thing that got me thinking most was not necessarily how Pep manages to overcomplicate tactics during these games but City players mental states during them Andy made a good point about doubts creeping into the heads of the team, and Steve talked about the player's apparent inability to deal with setbacks, either a goal or refereeing decision against the team. It reminded me of a statistic that Nick Harris tweeted when City were losing to Southampton in the Premier League about Manchester City's away record when losing at half-time in the Premier League, dating back to 1995. It's extraordinary. 1-1, drawn 12, lost 90. Could it be that the main reason for losing Champions League quarterfinals is that City are less able to deal with setbacks in a game and those setbacks are more likely to occur in Champions League knockout stages when playing high quality opposition in a high stress environment? If the answer is yes, then the question is this, Is the manager responsible for this? I would say the manager is responsible or responsible for changing this, which begs the question, is Pep a bad mental coach? Does he spend too much time on tactics and patterns of play and neglects the mental side of the game? And how do you go about changing this inability to deal with setbacks in a game when, as Andy said, the players are already thinking before the game, not again. A possible answer was actually given by Liverpool's assistant coach, Pep Linders, when he did an interview with a Dutch journalist in April last year. He explained how they tried to simulate setbacks in training. If I remember correctly, he explained how they design training games when the attacking team has a short time, say 15 minutes, to recover from 3-1 down. Sometimes they would let the attacking team play with one or two men less or to give refereeing decisions against them on purpose. The task for the players is then to keep playing with patience and adhere to the patterns. Anyway, I hope you find this addition to your wonderful podcast useful, and now I have extensively criticized City's players' resolve. Perhaps I should go and work on mine and figure out a way to get more motivation to work out. I suggest, Roseanne, have a bear and run away from it. That is Rosanne from Wageningen in the Netherlands.
0: This is, this is really interesting. I've never heard of training sessions. We, we used to do 11 against 10 when you get a man sent off, and that seems to be kind of bog standard. But I'm going to speak to a few people and find out whether coaches do run these scenarios in training. I, I've never heard of teams doing stuff like this. Rory, Steve, have you heard of teams training specifically for yeah. scenarios like this? This is really interesting. I think that's quite common. I think it's oh, okay. certainly
2: at, the, uh, at, your, at your cutting edge, Chinch. I think yeah. the, there's this. I've not been close to training. the
0: cutting
1: edge for, for many, many, many years. Increasingly in the Premier League now, you see some teams seemingly self inflicting wounds during matches in order to prepare themselves better for battles <laughs> further down the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they don't, even, they don't even save it for training, Chinch. But, I mean, but also, if you're saying, well, in training, you're playing
0: against kind of the reserve team or, or squad members. That can't be, how can you replicate being a goal down to Bayern Munich at half-time and trying you're, to recover? How, it's a completely, it is a completely different, I still think, yeah, it'll help to a degree to train that way. Yeah. But when it comes to the crunch and you're up against, that, that's your major problem. That seems to be where, where City's stumbling block is. Yeah, you obviously can't,
2: can't replicate it completely because the pressure, the same penalties, isn't it? that? Mm-hmm. People, look, people always say there's no point training penalties because you can't replicate the pressure. But if you're really good at taking penalties because you've trained them, you might be better under pressure. And I guess it's the same, the same logic. It's the same reason that a lot of them now train at the same time as they, as they play. Yeah, yeah.
3: Next to John Nekrasov. And this is regarding our burgeoning thread about the towns in uh, America called Decatur dear Stephen, andy hugh and rory thanks as always for the podcast it's lovely stuff and it's been one of my chief sources of enjoyment throughout this incredibly strange year i'm writing to clear up a brief historical question concerning my homeland the us of a and its seeming obsession with decatur's though not a resident of decatur myself i consume too much historical nonfiction for my own good rather like a certain football journalist obsessed with hungarian tactical innovations i suppose you are indeed correct that decatur was a naval figure there were Two Stephen Decatur's, the elder of which served in the American Revolution. The cities were all named, however, after Stephen Jr, who commanded seven different ships for the upstart American Navy, gaining particular distinction in what we refer to as the War of 1812, with Wikipedia claiming that thanks to a pre-war bet, he once won a beaver hat from the captain of a British vessel that he captured, which was the HMS Macedonia. Sadly, Decatur was killed in a duel in 1820, and he passed into legend. Although, as yet, editors note, Lynn manuel Miranda has not yet written a musical about him. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Hamilton. Today, there are upwards of 40 cities in the USA named after Stephen Jr. Due to his many accomplishments in keeping us an independent nation, which I suppose can be directly correlated to my country's stubbornness in adopting what is the greatest sport, in human history. That from John Nekrasov. Nekrasov, Nekrasov.
2: Is it a bit of a shame that, that they're all called Decatur and not Steve Town?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd be moving to one of them straight away. You could, you could write a book, you'd do a tour of them. <laughs> yeah what like one of those who was it the guy that traveled around Ireland with a fridge or played the, yeah yeah Tony, played the Moldovans at, H- yeah. at tennis yeah can make it my uh, my ambition to visit every Stephen town in the USA I think I think it's, it's going to be Steve town but the um, <laughs> or Stevie town surely Stevie town but you could sort
2: of go to all 40 and see which one was was most Steve that would be I'd read that <laughs> I'd read 7,000 words on the athletic about that <laughs>
3: Uh, on a similar theme, you'll remember the the uh, Eric Dyer fancier called Laura from Brooklyn, who, by the way, Rory, ends her email by asking, by asking if Hector had a good birthday.
2: Uh, he kind of had a 48-hour birthday, because we forgot which, whether it was the 17th <laughs> or the 18th, so he had two good birthdays.
3: Dear Stephen et al., says uh, Laura, since I last wrote, Eric Dyer signed a new four-year contract. My father took to referring to himself as Rory Smith's number one fan's number one fan, and I rode the subway for the first time in five months. Nature is healing, she says. Coincidentally, I listened to Chinch's rumination on American place names from last week's episode, just as I crossed Brooklyn's Decatur Street, en route to buy a pie. Having lived for a year in the UK, I can confirm that Americans view British place names with the same awe and wonderment with which Chinch views American place names. The difference is that British place names tend to be more whimsical, bordering on risible, uh, than American ones? A friend, while playing the game Sim City, used to make up fake English town names. They were along the lines of Stokington upon Cinderby and Fuckington <laughs> on Burton. Best regards.
0: <laughs> there's, a, there's
2: a little area in the, in the southwest, like Dorset, Wil- Wiltshire, not quite into Hampshire, but maybe a bit of rural Hampshire, where well, I'm pretty sure the place names are taking a piss. Because they are they are those kind of ridiculously kind of old-fashioned, evil in war type places, and I'm sure they're not real. I'm sure it's just someone joking and sort of coming up with yeah, you fucking on
1: Burton. I know someone who was arrested for. And <laughs> oh, <Steve. laughs>
3: oh, dearie me. Correspondences of any kind uh, without the swear words to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, one of the first things to go this summer because of the pandemic, you'll remember way back when, was Euro 2020, a tournament 60 years in the making that'll just have to wait one more. What it took from us, we thought, was that biennial excitement of knockout football over 90 minutes with so much at stake. But then... In that same coronavirus context, we were given another chance to enjoy just that. The quarterfinals onwards of the Europa League and Champions League played out like a World Cup or Euros would, bringing with it that same sense of jeopardy and intrigue. And yes, goddammit, excitement too. And fears that one-off games will give us an inaccurate representation of who indeed the best team is, were also dutifully quashed, with Sevilla and Bayern Munich both winning their sixth titles so given the competitive integrity albeit with the spice of the likes of Leipzig's run and Lyon's upsets both classic subplot tropes of a major international tournament too what chance the European football authorities and also maybe the clubs take the success of the hastily arranged mini tournaments on board might they learn from the circumstances admittedly thrust upon them that have produced this thrilling result no and no end of pot despite UEFA president Alexander Shefferin's suggestion that they might consider it there is surely no way anyone would agree to massively reduced gate receipts and fewer viewers due to fewer matches on the television so then the Champions League that was fun so let's not do it again
2: it's really weird you know that that, they, that they've kind of dismissed it out of hand on the on the basis that they, don't, they think they can't make as much money out of it because Surely there's some way that if, you, if that finals tournament, especially in the Champions League, and I'm not advocating that it should happen. But I think the Champions League is, is fine as it is. And it's only a year since we had the most dramatic week of football in history in the sem- because of the format of two semi-finals, But it's really strange to kind of dismiss it out of hand on the grounds that the money is in the, the more usual format. When surely you could sell the TV rights for an end of season competition between the eight biggest clubs in the world for an absolute fortune. I mean, I would have thought that would increase the television rights. You could even, personally, I, th- I think if you were to, to change the format so that this year's was, was how it was going, going forward, I think you'd use it as a way of easing the pressure on the calendar during the season you buy yourself all those, different, those extra free weeks. But I'm sure what UEFA would do is shove in an extra group stage so that you get in even more games than an, an, an end-of-season tournament. But I would have thought that that, that sort of 10-day, two-week period could be incredibly valuable TV. It's like a World Cup. The last stages of a World Cup every year with teams that people care about. It's, it's perfect, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Fewer games doesn't necessarily mean less money, less revenue and less interest because there'd be a huge window of opportunity where it had football exclusivity on an almost global scale. And by having it in one place the eyes of the footballing world would be on those. I think you'd have to do it from the quarterfinals onwards to make it really worthwhile. And that might be the the biggest stumbling block. But you'd have the eyes of the footballing world on something for a fortnight that would be fascinating and captivating. I agree with Rory that I don't necessarily see that there's a need for change because last season proved that. All you would hope that if it was a consideration and what this year has presented us with is an opportunity to consider how things could be altered ever so slightly, is that in order to give yourself that two-week window at the end of the domestic season and before the run-up to the start of major summer tournaments began, you would have to pull the end of domestic seasons forward. So you would have to get everybody on board with making sure they use those suddenly free mid-weeks that no longer had Champions League or Europa League windows in them were used appropriately there doesn't seem any reason why you couldn't have domestic leagues finishing in the middle of may rather than the penultimate weekend of may and give yourself that two-week opportunity be fascinating the
2: The other objection obviously is is, um is you you can't really have fans of eight teams descending on one city for a fortnight partly just very few cities are big enough to kind of absorb that influx of people partly because of the risk of violence and partly because of the kind of, I guess, the, the, the logistics of, of staging the games. Given that you know you get 60, 70, 70 80,000 people will travel for, for buy-in for Manchester United for Liverpool, and potentially for a couple of others. Ajax travel in numbers as well. But surely the way to adapt to, to then adapt to that circumstance is you say right, we're not just going to do it in Lisbon. We'll do it in Lisbon and Porto. Yeah. We'll do it in London and Manchester. In Glasgow and Edinburgh. Do you know what I mean? You just you kind of the, the certain places. I guess Istanbul. You you've got the, certainly got the stadium, and I guess you might have the hotels. Um, but you could do it in Milan and Turin. That's not a problem. You play play quarters at the Allianz and at San Siro, and then you play the semi one semi in each city, and then and you play the final at San Siro. That works. I, I think that there's ways you could adapt it so that it's not all in the same place. But the tournament format definitely seems to add something i think it's much it's certainly something they should be thinking about for the europa league maybe not for the champions league but i think it it would be a shame in a way if this wasn't kind of the format that took off for the europa league
0: talking about freeing up the fixture congestion it does make sense what what's coming out of the clubs would there be any complaints from the clubs about running it in this way group stage and then making it a finals tournament for both competitions Why, why would clubs not want that either Get receipts
1: yeah they'd see it from a short-termism point of view mm. wouldn't they they'd, they'd look at the numbers the semi-final uh, the leg of a semi-final in the champions league and and they wouldn't want to give that up but yeah there must be ways of, of redistrib- redistributing the money to make it worth their while
3: what we are kind of driving at is the is the, the understanding that there is a, a financial pressure on clubs to want more games there is an understanding that more games also provides more television viewers regardless of the, of the of the point we just made about the fact that loads of people tune into a high stakes one-off games uh, towards the end of a season in one place but we are essentially also describing what would happen if there was a european super league you would mm-hmm. have those teams Say, for example, you'd split 16 and 16. You'd have those teams attempt to try and play each other once throughout the course of the season. And then you would have a playoff system to determine the winners of the top eight thereafter. So actually, even though UEFA are looking at this and thinking to themselves, no, hang on a minute, we need to make sure we we, uh, keep getting as much revenue as possible by having as many games as possible. Are they also on the other side of that coin going to be considering in these dark meeting rooms in Neon the possibility that this actually encourages other people who might have been against the idea of the European Super League, into thinking, well, hang on a minute. If we say to those who are against the idea of European Super League, look at what happened. We can provide you an eight-team playoff over the course of 10 days at the end of the season to counterbalance any objections you might have about the format in its entirety. Are you not getting the best of both worlds? You get rid of the group stages early on when they're not really that great in terms of entertainment. And also you kind of know which two teams are going to go through in each group. If you have the top 16 teams all playing each other, then surely you're going to get a better game from September onwards and you're also going to get a better finish
1: in May as well. Uh, yeah, and I think the, what you, you would have the opportunity to potentially spread the group stage out a bit further. If UEFA could be flexible about domestic competitions being allowed to play at the same time Champions League group stage matches, then you could spread those out through the first half of the season a little bit more so that that would raise the profile of the competition, then because it would be on more regularly, even if there weren't actually more games. You'd have this brilliant sort of round of 16 two legged shootouts to be part of, you know, which you would have maybe end of February, beginning of March, which would be all about earning yourself a place at that finals tournament. Then you could park it for a bit and let those teams focus on their domestic leagues. Cause I think as we might get onto something that another thing that we've learned over the course of the last couple of seasons is how much harder it seems to be getting to to win your domestic league and the Champions League, do that double and be able to legitimately call yourselves the champions of Europe. So you could partly the the Champions League finish domestic competitions straight run at that make that those competitions all the more satisfying and then you've got that that drama and that that intrigue from an eight team knockout and I know someone who was with United for the Europa League situation in northern Germany where there was definitely a sense from speaking to him as though it was about getting through the game so that you remained part of this competition nobody wanted to go into the bubble for a couple of days and and come home. They wanted to to stay within that excitement and the sense of disappointment in getting knocked out of the semi-final stage was more akin to a major tournament than how the Champions League and Europa League are currently.
3: I know, Chinch, you enjoy the creature comforts at home of home and you did so as a player, but the idea of having an opportunity to go and be a part of a tournament for a player, do you think that they get a heightened sense of of kind of involvement, heightened sense of emotional engagement with the whole process. Do they care about legs being, you know, split home and away, or just over ninety minutes at a neutral venue? Do they care about how much they enjoy the victory in either sense?
0: Well, players players will play and do as they're told, but if you gave them the choice of being involved in mini tournaments, basically, I, I feel the majority of them would want to be involved in that. Because, as Steve said, you get that focus and it remains on, and you want to be part of that. And see it all the way to the end. But I presume with UEFA, they want the competition to run throughout the whole season. So that's why it is spread out. Would they actually want to play the group stages, be a big gap, and then this finals tournament? I'm not sure they would want that, that break and that kind of they, they lose the focus on the Champions League, which they presumably see as the most important competition during any team season. But for the players, you know, even going to tour another international tournament, but going to the Euros or going to World Cups. It is a really special feeling to be involved in it, and you do feel very differently being part of a two-week or a four-week process rather than just going to, to game after game, week after week. So for the players, and I, I feel they would probably enjoy it more and might actually approach it a little bit differently as well because of that kind of you, you're just totally immersed in it for that period of time. I think you might even get better games, and probably from what we've seen, I don't know whether we feel from what we've seen in this kind of finals tournament, have the games been better than we maybe would have expected if they'd been played under normal... It's hard to say because it's hypothetical, but do do we think that this actually really did bring the best out of these teams playing this kind of finals tournament? I don't know if
2: it brought the best out of the teams, but I think it probably changed the nature of the results to an extent. So if you... The semi-finals were a bit weird because they were, they were, they were in balance. me you know, Leon thought, played really
0: well against Bayern. But... There's no fans there as so well. I suppose if you have a finals tournament with fans there, would that yeah, change again the whole feeling around and how teams perform? But I think over, over two legs, Leon and
2: Leipzig wouldn't sort of any chance to tour yeah. against PSG and Bayern because that, that format allows the, the higher quality team, the, the elite team. But is that
0: going against the principle of the competition?
2: By well know one-off
0: game rather than two games.
2: I think what it does is it changes the competition. And I do wonder the thing, the bit where I kind of thought actually maybe this is this is something that we should explore a bit more, is does the, the, the one-off nature, the nature of a one-off game, does that to some extent counterbalance the endless stratification of football? Does it give Leon a chance over 90 minutes in its the City? Because mm-hmm. Leon a good team, mm-hmm. over 180 city's quality would probably Bear around, like any we.
0: cup competition, you've yeah. got a chance of winning it. The teams that we played when you know, I won the FA Cup with Everton, if we'd have played those games over two legs, there's, there's no way we'd have beaten Man United. But in a one-off game, you've got it, a it can happen. You've got a chance. So I think, again, you're turning it from a, a, a two-legged or a kind of a league competition to a cup competition. Is it right to actually flip into another style of football within one competition?
1: But if you think about the Atalanta-PSG quarterfinal, which people will tell you I commentated on adequately, then (laughs) that is the the perfect example of how this format might benefit in the long run. Because Atalanta were leading that game, looked like they were going to win it. And over a a two-legged situation, PSG might have retreated, accepted the 1-0 defeat in the first leg, with the feeling that their greater superiority, man for man, would benefit them across two legs. And that wherever the second leg was being played, they would probably prevail. Whereas instead, what you got was the drama of what happened in stoppage time and unlikely heroes in Marquinius and uh, Eric Maxim, Choupo-Moting. Because if that game had gone to a second leg, the chances are it would have been Mbappe or Neymar who'd upped their level, got them level in the tie early on in the second leg and they'd have run away with it in the end. So instead, you've got the drama and unlikely heroes and and that's kind of what you get in World Cups and European Championships sometimes. What you also get though in,
3: in World Cups and European Championships sometimes because they're played over one leg is is the kind of capitulation that we saw in the 7-1 in the in the 2014 semi-final between Brazil and and, and Germany, but also the 8-2 between Bayern and Barcelona, I don't think that 8-2 would have happened in the first leg of a two-legged affair, because I think Barcelona, given the opportunity of having a second leg, might have been at home, might not have been, would have been able to stem the tide a little bit more successfully than what happened in that game, because they they got the impression that there was no way of coming back, and that probably demotivates you even further than they would have been demotivated by the scoreline.
2: I think the principle that you're describing is completely correct. I think in that specific instance, you might have got an 8-2 at home and an 8-2 away.
3: (laughs) 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 So when they were at 14-2 down on aggregate, that's when they might have just kind of thought to themselves, well, let's give it another go.
2: This this is our time to shine.
3: Yes.
2: Only 13 in it. Let's have a crack. <laughs> but
3: you, but you, and and uh, Phil, Phil McNulty on the BBC Sport website wrote, wrote a piece to say that he didn't want to see 90 minutes uh, decide Champions League knockout games because of what, and Steve mentioned it, because of what happened the season before last, which was uh, the comebacks by Liverpool and the late goal by Spurs against um, Barcelona and. Uh, Iax respectively so those those are fashioned by the two legged system so it's not like 90 minutes is the only format that gives us drama two two legs gives us a different kind of drama because it is formatted to help one team and then the other, as opposed to 90 minutes, which may well be ebb and flow. And you've got the, the turnaround, as uh, Steve mentioned, in the PSG Atalanta game, which happened in the, in the space of three or four minutes. And it's
2: a truer test as well. Two legs is a truer test. Home and away, it, it's a more thorough examination of of the team's qualities rather than than that 90 minute shootout. And I don't think we, I think there's too much focus. In, in the media in general, with, with finding like the right answer to something. I think there are massive benefits to the two leg system, and because of the, of the tradition, and crucially because it gives more fans a chance to go to the games. I think that is, is right that we stick with that. But equally, there are huge, huge advantages to having it over in, the, in this sort of tournament format. That, that maybe you don't need in the Champions League because the, the states are so high in the Champions League that it would, you could play best of seven series like they do in the American sports and it would still feel dramatic, if quite boring. But I, I wonder whether for the Europa League, which has always struggled since since it, it's rebranding, they've, re- they've rebadged it since it's reba- rebranding. They, um, it's struggled for kind of identity and it's, it's basically been set up by UEFA not on purpose as kind of like, here's a sh- version of the Champions League what do you think I wonder if you were to revert to the two-bedded format for the Champions League you you maybe could stick with this as a finals tournament for the Europa League and the other one that I think it it might work really really well for is the the Women's Champions League I think that it would be a great idea for the Women's Champions League which is a a really good tournament but the the kind of the the economics and the logistics of women's football currently are maybe better suited to saying right every year at the end of the 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 season we're going to have a two-week tournament maybe from the last 16 onwards and we're going to choose one city and we're going to invite the best, the best 16 teams. That's how many is in the last 16. Make the best. <laughs> I'm
3: going is to leave that, right? that pause in and that, yeah, definite, um, that pause in
1: Just had to check that. I'm just going to make a note of that. Hang on, because I don't want to forget that. Last 16 equals 16 Six. teams.
2: Wow. Mm. And they play each other. So there are hold, two eight games. Yes. Yeah. The, That's um, why they
3: are often known as the eighth finals. Yes, the
2: eighth, <laughs> the, the, the round of eight. <laughs> The um, but uh, the round
3: teams. the round of eight is definitely quarter final Yeah, that's
2: true. Um, <laughs> this is embarrassing. The I feel like where's Kat Bondman when we need her? Come on. <laughs> the um,
3: Rachel Riley to our younger listeners.
2: Exactly. <laughs> oh. Yes. Um, yeah. I think for the women's championship, it could be a really good idea. It might that it might, well, it might give it its own sort of crawling chart, but it also might help stem the dominance of Leon. Who, who have far greater resources than everybody else and therefore tend to win over two late.
3: I'm, I'm interested about this, this, this competing um, benefits to the clubs in particular. Now, we can understand why UEFA might favour any sort of uh, format over any other. And also, they've got multiple tournaments in which they can have different formats. So they can even trial, as you say, Rory, for, for, a, for a competition that might benefit a little more. But it might be something that they trial in a way to bring um public consciousness to it so that perhaps it can be then implemented somewhere else if it benefits UEFA but from the club's point of view if there are those who do want to eventually have some sort of European Super League I I I do wonder if that there is an opportunity for UEFA and the clubs to have because because they are often obviously at odds over over quite a few things about the footballing future it could be like a gateway drug It could be a, hey, look at this, introduce it, then maybe you'll want a little bit more because it has had enough value, certain in terms of the drama and also the fact that we are all able to watch it because there's no other football going on. It was of enough tangible value to UEFA for them to try and convince the clubs that that might be a way forward, to stop them, to stop them uh, breaking away to form their own European Super League.
2: I think the risk is that what UEFA would do to, to kind of assuage the clubs is they'd say we will have this tournament because it will make us loads of money and it gives you that kind of super lead light effectively. But that instead of using it as a way to ease the pressure on the calendar, you effectively bloat the competition beforehand. Which again, these things aren't aren't black and white. So again that might that might solve one problem. It might mean you could actually invite more teams into the Champions League. You should you should stop having this stupid situation where half the teams are from four countries, which is insane. You could say right actually do you not know we can guarantee spots to the champions of, you know, the top sixteen, the top twenty countries, in an expanded initial group stage that then leads into a second group stage, which means everyone gets more games, and then it goes into the quarterfinals. The problem with that is you're then you're then expanding the calendar so much that you're asking far too much of the players.
1: But I don't think you need to expand it, providing you are willing to accept, as I said, domestic football being played in the same windows as some of these Champions League and Europa League group games. That would just be the mature way to deal with it and what you could effectively create without it being quite as bloated is the qualifying tournament for a major tournament where teams would be playing for that opportunity at the shootout at the end. I think the problem with, I, I like Rory's suggestion that it would work better for the Europa League than the Champions League. I think the problem with that is is how do you organize the calendar where one European mm, competition yeah. has a has that two week thing at the end of the season, and the other one doesn't. That would be almost impossible to get right. But in terms of the drama of those two-legged knockout games, that would be heightened even more for the round of 16, and potentially if you know somehow you ended up with a round of 32 in the Champions League. Because think about it: in the, in the yes, we have we've had those plenty of examples of amazing games in the quarterfinals and semifinals in recent history over two legs. But imagine what those round of 16 games would be like over two legs if you were playing for a place in that tournament and to be three games away from being European champions. It would be immense. I would also get away from this thing that's never sat entirely comfortably with me, that the Champions League, you play everybody home and away right up until the final. I know you've got to have the showpiece occasion. Of course you have. But it does seem slightly nuts that every game leading up to that point is played over two legs and then us all or nothing today or all or nothing this evening. It would help you steer you away from that a little bit and that you'd effectively have a qualifying tournament and this major tournament at the end of it that would be very, very marketable.
2: It's funny, isn't it, that, that one of the objectives that I've seen raised to the idea of continuing this format is that the Champions League, as it, as it kind of generally stands, is a much truer test of, you know, the best team will always win because it's home and away. And you think, well the final's completely arbitrary, why are you ignoring that? And it's, it's really funny how, how the way things are, people really convince themselves, and we all do it, I do not exclude myself from this, but people really convince themselves that the, the way things are must be the best way for them to be, and it's really hard to, it's the same with um, a friend of ours, I was at my parents' house for the day, and and a friend of ours had got, got an electric car, and they've got a little girl, a little daughter, who was explaining to us that they've got a boot at the front and at the back, and I said to my dad, well, why didn't they just make the car a different shape? If you don't need to have like a big area at the front for an engine, why does it have to? And it's because it's car shaped. That's what Mm -hmm. cars are shaped like. So you you don't change it because otherwise how do you know it was a car? It's the same with European football. It has to be two legs because it's always been two legs. But why does it have to be two legs? Maybe Maybe there is a better way of doing it. We don't know. But there's this kind of mental block that prevents people kind of exploring
1: whether you can be a car, but not be car-shaped. Can I shovel it in a slightly different direction, Chairman? I mean, I know you you normally like to take control of these things, Hugh. Chairman? Don't encourage him. (laughs) El (laughs) Presidente. El Presidente. I I, I have three (laughs) notes and I only have one to go, so I shall do that
3: after you've made this point.
1: (laughs) No, just I, I think, as already muted, increasingly the best team in Europe doesn't necessarily win the Champions League because it's really, really difficult to do both. The 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 situation, the circumstances in which a non-champion wins the Champions League are increasing, and Bayern have obviously bucked that trend this season. And there is that sort of sense that can you really be the champion of Europe if you're not even the best team in your domestic league? So it has that potential to overshadow your success. So the competition has moved away slightly from being, well, this is the definitive finding out who the best team in Europe is, because that is, it, you look at the quarterfinals this season, only two teams, the, the ultimate finalists, Bayern and PSG, also won their titles this season, and both of them are on record-breaking runs of having won successive titles. Uh, Juventus, the other team that's on that phenomenal run, were pushed as close as they have been in ages. They only finished one point above Inter, so the champions of Italy, England, and Spain didn't reach the quarterfinal stage of the Champions League. So it shows you how difficult it is to do both. So there is a sense that you know, hang on, if it is, if that is the real. Challenge of trying to get these teams that are the best teams in their country at that time through to the very latter stages of the Champions League, then a slight reshuffling the way that the tournament is played might give you that opportunity because you would enable Liverpool to be able to focus on winning the Premier League as they were so determined to do this season, but still potentially have a greater opportunity to go all the way in Europe because you wouldn't be having to juggle two things at the same time, which in some divisions feels like it's becoming increasingly difficult to do
2: not feel that that's actually quite a good way of balancing out some kind of excellence from greatness so that if you're yeah. you, can, you can be an excellent team because you win either the champions League or your domestic league but it's kind of the preserve of the great teams the truly great teams that they can win them both at the same time i, I and Steve's completely right I, and I, I, I get his argument entirely but I wonder whether it's that's one of those happy accidents where it gives us a natural. The Champions League is a different test to a domestic league. The domestic league rewards that kind of bulldozer quality that the the excellent teams have, that ability to just churn out results week in, week out. The Champions League tests something else. The and I wonder whether the, the the combination of the two is maybe. We had all those stupid. You remember all those stupid conversations about whether Liverpool were the greatest Premier League champions ever, and and everyone kind of. It just ended in lots of people shouting at each other because literally everybody has their own set of criteria influenced basically by who they support. And the, you tell us, there, were, there were times during that when, I, when you just sort of thought, look, we we'll are not just change the wording a bit here. Instead of saying, are they the best Premier League champions ever? Should we talk about whether they are the most dominant Premier League champions ever, which at one point it looked like they might be. Obviously, they, they fell a point short, and City are the most dominant Premier League champions ever. Um, but I think in... In a way, in a sport that loves having those conversations and kind of needs to have needs have needs space to have those conversations, I think that that dual test of, of the slight randomness of the Champions League combined with the the reward for consistency of the of the domestic leagues that's quite a good barometer to me of of all right you're a you're a brilliant team but these these are the great teams.
3: Yeah, we've had correspondence about that before, haven't we? About this this idea is very difficult, particularly in in a sport with multiple competitions for teams to fight for, that it's very, very difficult to, uh, to have a, a, a team who everybody has decided is the best that year. And, and, and that's why in American sports, you only have uh, that one thing to fight for via a playoff system that we've just been talking about and fighting, or almost fighting to get into that playoffs extends the drama back even further than we're even talking about now. That makes it a lot easier for people to, to make that determination. What, what, before we um, move on to, to, to a question I wanted to ask about Bayern and PSG and the kind of the competitive integrity uh, I mentioned at the beginning. Rory, the, the idea that uh, germinated, I think, from you, but we stole it and then you perpetuated it in your column about the FA Cup having this week long uh, tournament at the end of the uh, domestic season in England no where idea. you would have the quarterfinals, semi finals, and final. Mm-hmm. Given that that is an excellent idea, and given the that that idea. idea is also something that we're trying to uh, wonder if it'll work for a European competition, can you have both? Well, I think if you, you have if, to choose,
2: if you cancel the entire season and only play the last three weeks with a selection of sides, then yes, I think it's fine. Uh, it'd be tricky, but it would depend. It would be a, a case of, of kind of logistics and scheduling and, and making sure it all works. I don't think I don't think it's impossible. I, it strikes me, and I have literally done no research on this, but it's, it strikes me that the European domestic seasons are ending later and later. The, the English top flight certainly ends later than it used to, and later than it needs to. The, the, the I mean, Serie and La Liga occasionally stretch into June, which I think they always have, and that's partly, I don't want to sound like I'm being xenophobic, but partly due to poor organisation. Um, the, the and, 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 ability, and inability to agree on anything ever. But the, I do wonder whether if you could get everybody on board. And what, you get everyone, to get everyone on board, you kind of need a, an idea that works for everybody. You need an idea that is saleable to all of the different interest groups. So I and I wonder whether kind of a finals tournament for the Champions League and the Europa League is one of those ideas that you could basically say to the leagues, look, we can buy you space and time for your own domestic competition. Seferin's really keen on, on restoring competitive balance to the, to the domestic leagues. That's his big thing, much more than FFP. Um, but you can equally say to the big clubs, look, we've got this cash cow coming at the end of every year. that is going to make you all incredibly rich. It's exactly what you want. It's halfway to the super league, but it's under our banner. It works for you. It works for the players as it can ease the, ease the scheduling. It kind of, it, it, it reduces the impact of that stratification, but also maybe it validates having like front loaded squads. Maybe it's, it's a way for the big clubs to say to, to the players that they kind of hoard, we can find you enough, enough football to make it worthwhile. Um, yeah, I think it might it could be one of those things that does actually work for everybody apart from fans who go to games, which is obviously amongst the most important constituencies that we can talk about. Um but in terms of the whether you did that for the for the FA Cup as well, I think you could. I think it would make, maybe mean you end the, you you end the Premier League on instead of May the eighteenth, May the twenty-first, maybe you end the Premier League on May the fourth when the championship ends, then you have a week of FA Cup, and then you have a, a two-week European. Interlude for the three or four teams, a handful of teams that have got there, and you know what? If they if if they have packed schedules, and that's good, isn't it? Because that means they're competing for everything. And that's kind of the
3: point. And would it, would it also help if if UEFA and the FA Cup uh, via the FA would be able to free up some opportunities earlier on in the season, which would normally be given over to the Champions League, Europa yeah. League, or the FA Cup? It would mean some sort of competitive consistency for league sides playing in the league competition. I I don't know, Chinch, whether it's actually that much of makes that much of a difference to a player. If they've got a game on the Saturday in the league, then on the Wednesday in the league cup, then on the Saturday uh, uh, in the league again, then you've got a champions league game on the Wednesday, and then you've got an FA cup fifth round game on the, on the Saturday. Does that make any difference or do, do, do some players like the idea of playing league, 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 league and then packing in a different competition at a different time to have that competitive consistency and perhaps just to understand a little bit more about the stakes that are, that are on the table?
0: Well, I suppose as a player, you'd want to run in a competition to kind of get some momentum. But again, the successful teams is going to chop and change the tournaments that they're playing and you're not going to get three or four league games. Is, is that a is that a what's it what is, it? is that a waffle you're eating while i'm making a really salient <laughs> pertinent point rory smith everybody's, devouring, eating. everybody's eating chinch starts talking for the first
3: time in about 15 minutes rory gets out a street waffle. he's on a 15 minute mawam that he's going to be chewing now for the rest of the show so um go, go ahead chinch You've i'm, I'm just going. gonna get this is
0: absolutely disgrace stop eating like that rory that's <laughs> disgusting that really is. You have not an bit.
3: endless supply of street Waffles. You always have street Waffles.
0: So players, yes, they, they'd want to play a runner games in a competition. To get them. You're not going to get that in cup competitions, clearly. So it is going to be mainly kind of the league. But I think the successful teams, there's so many competitions they're involved in. I, I'm not sure that players even think about that at all. They just play the next game. They prepare for the next game. That's all you can do. And as players, you're trying to, as coaches, you're trying to keep it as simple as possible for your players. So, again, the the challenge is going to change, of course, the quality of opposition, where the game is being played. But I I don't think for players, it really is something that would concern them over. They probably don't even realize they they might have three or four league games, but they they don't even realize that that is the case because they're just so used to going out and playing. I was just waiting for the
3: swallow there, and here it is, Rory.
0: (laughs)
2: I've heard stories of players not only like not knowing what city they're in for games like being confused by the fact that like what like where's benfica is like what like city country yeah i wouldn't surprise me at all if there's plenty of players who don't really know at times which competition the, the game is in like yeah players who are a bit like this this is a league cup game what is what is the league cup are we still in it why are we playing in it is it is it important i'm not sure i think I mean, would know much better than me, obviously, having had such an illustrious career. But I do wonder whether, in the in the at the height of the season, there must be time when players to be like, "I don't care what competition this is in; I'm just going to go out and be a left back."
0: Well, sometimes that's what coaches want—they just want players to go and play. not overthink what they're doing, what competition it is. Just just keep it simple, stupid. And that's what. Again, you get to the late, late later stage of the season. Yeah, you don't want players thinking too much about their job. Just go out and play. I'm telling you how you're going to play. Go and do it, whether it be Mansfield. Or munchen go and play
1: <laughs> what about what a great party game it would be with uh, footballers to so sort of, rather than pin the tail on the donkey it would be stick the pin in port vale <laughs> that would be amazing
0: forget, forget where is benfica where is portugal could be a, a challenge for most <laughs> players well, that's a really that's a really good <laughs> idea of going to like does
2: players travel so much like there'll be players who've been to kind of almost every european country i'd love to know how many
0: of them actually know where these clubs are based that would be fascinating Answer: i'm not being funny the countries if you said gave them a map of europe and said where's germany are you how many are you saying 90 percent of players could say there's germany there's angela merkel's homeland there's no way i'm telling you because they just they get on buses stick the headphones on watch the fa- i'm sure they do the same on the playstations and they just and again are we should they be immersing themselves? They're there to do a job. They're, they're highly paid to go out and play. Should to be saying, "Well, I want to go on a, a cultural, you know, I want to go on a, a cultural bus trip around Lisbon, so I can really learn about the place before we go out and play." No, they're there to play. They play. They go home again. Simple as that. So, is it? Are we being? it's unfair maybe to say you have no idea where Portugal is let alone Lisbon this has taken a
3: turn I, I wonder if Raul Jimenez knows exactly where Cologne is and uh, we should probably ask him next time we have the opportunity to, to, not to talk to him
2: I'm not entirely convinced that Raul Jimenez knows exactly where Wolverhampton
1: is to be honest <laughs> he's going to be horrified when he finds out <laughs>
3: private jet into Birmingham airport and the rest of the tinted windows blacked out car doesn't really matter. Mm. So the final point is is that we, we spoke about that competitive integrity and, and, and the, the fact that Sevilla won their sixth and Bayern Munich won their sixth in this different uh, uh, competition format. Um, Chinch, what did you make of the final? I know you had your eyes uh, glued to it against, uh, for, for Bayern Munich against PSG.
0: Why would you ask me such a cruel, cruel question? <laughs> what happened in the sport? You know, Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I immersed myself fully in TV that
1: evening. What, what a you, game.
0: Which a of, result. What? Which of Neymar's
1: tumbles was the most dramatic, do you think? Oh, you know, If you Steve, had to pick one I, of them.
0: I don't think I can pick. They were all dramatic. In defence of Neymar, I don't think any player in
2: the world gets the same treatment as he does. He gets... Jack he, Grealish. He got...
0: <laughs> Who Jack Grealish. Is Jack Grealish gets clattered every single time he takes possession of the ball. He is... He is the Premier League's Neymar, but he doesn't tend to fall over quite as much.
2: Neymar gets Neymar. Neymar does get really. I'm not necessarily. I'm not like an ardent. I'm not a like a Neymarian. A Neymarian. I, he's obviously he's obviously a brilliant footballer, but I don't know. I, I think there's a slight element of kind of overhype about Neymar, but he does get ridiculously brutal treatment. And there was it was really interesting watching Bayern against Neymar. <clears throat> Sorry, got stroopwafel stuck in my throat. Good. It, there was a, there was a large element of Bayern kind of targeting Neymar, but the one that really stood out to me was Atalanta, who were this wonderful footballing fairy tale. It was brilliant, attack, brilliant attack inside, but the brutal, cynical tactical fouling on PSG players was was spectacular to watch. I really enjoyed it.
1: And the, the great thing about that was how they recycled who was kicking yeah. him until everybody had been booked, and booked except Martin Darun, who was then detailed to just boot him every time for the final 15 minutes whilst lo- trying to look innocent at the referee.
3: So basically the format has not changed the fact that uh, Neymar gets brutalised but also tends to, to, to fall over quite a lot. There was one, one occasion I seem to remember that he, he got somebody booked for fouling them. Uh, which is an extraordinary achievement by Neymar.
2: In answer to your question, Hugh, because I was watching the Champions League final exclusively and not also watching the bridge at the same time, the, um, I thought it was a really good game. And it was interesting that it... So, I, yeah, my gauge for how good a game is is how quickly it passes. And the first half particular, particularly really flew by. It was a really interesting... It wasn't a sort of fascinating tactical battle. It was a really good end-to-end game. But I think because people's expectations are so high... Especially given the format, given how many goals they both scored, given that they're both champions, given that there's this sort of perception that PSG can't defend, which is really outdated. PSG are quite good defensively, given that we'd all decided that Bayern's high line was vulnerable, which I think was always theoretically true, but kind of forgot the fact that... David Alaba is lightning quick. Alphonso Davies is lightning quick. Jerome Boateng is still pretty quick. He's a little bit old now, but he's still pretty quick. And Joshua Kimmich is one of the most intelligent footballers on the planet.
1: We'd Us, saw- by the way, Rory, buy and consider Manuel Neuer to be their defensive line. So they don't <laughs> recognise this criticism that they're playing with a high line because their defensive line is, the, well, about two yards outside the penalty box. But in
2: terms of like, not just drama and tension, which obviously all finals have, but in terms of like the the quality of execution, I thought I thought it was a really good game, and it was the, the reaction was almost proof that, I, short of getting a four all draw, the draws the penalties and everyone scores the penalties, and then there's a round where everyone misses their penalties. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I don't think there's a single game that will satisfy people. I saw Alan Smith, who's a, a journalist, an Irish journalist in London, saying that he was staggered that a, a game between two highly competent, intelligent teams was not reckless and stupid and you sort of think well yeah of course it's not these these teams are really good at football they are not going to make loads of slapdash mistakes just to entertain you that's not what this is about in terms of being a a, a game of sufficient caliber to reflect the highest standards in european football i thought it really did its job
0: yeah i'd like to congratulate the munchen machine and also congratulate steve for asking a really good tactical question about manuel Noya. whilst eating A That was was truly, truly impressive.
3: I was going to say, once I saw uh, Stephen uh, neck another two or three during Rory's Mm. original point, that perhaps he had uh, finished making his own uh, during the course of the podcast. But no, we know too well that Stephen does not uh, see food as any sort of impediment to him making a point, good or not. Um, So now, instead of a soccer story from Chinch this week, we have a story from Chinch that is actually somebody else's. Not only have some of you provided us with your own soccer stories, uh, we've also had Chinch read out-of-context excerpts from the Jack Reacher canon. Well, what about combining those two to have a thrilling tale penned by someone else other than Lee Child, and it's not his brother? Matt Sciandra sent us this a little while ago, which is made clear by the dating of it. Uh, in the first line. He says, I was at my daughter's school today, which is something that really frankly doesn't happen very much anymore, to see some of the work that she has been doing. I think it's fair to say that some of her writing at age nine rivals much of Lee Child's output so if you're ever looking to spice up the out of context Reacher in a non-sexualized way over what I'm sure would be Chinch's objections I submit the attached selection of my daughter's Halloween writing exercise for your review seeing as Reacher fears neither man nor beast I think his would have to be the role of the vampire gladly acquiescing to your humble request that I continue to find room for you in my podcast schedule Matt Skiandra, aspiring buffalo from across the pond so Chinch Courtesy of Matt's daughter, who he does not name in his email, age 9, please scare us with a Halloween tale.
0: I'm going to read this verbatim. Now, I have to qualify it. This is is a nine-year-old's writing, so there are some alarming grammatical errors in it. it. It's not me reading it wrong. I'm reading what's written down on the page here in pencil. So... Clearly, she's leaned on the page as well, and it's got a bit smudgy. But I'll I'll do my very best. And there's there's lots of eyes in it. But again, I'm reading what's on the page. So this this is Halloween writing. Bang! The door of the haunted house slammed behind me, meant to be slammed. I heard a whoosh, then a crash. I got so scared, I almost jumped out of my skin. After that, shaking and trembling all over, I walked up the staircase, which was completely pitch black. Well, it would be. Then suddenly I tripped and I fell over, I moaned. Then I heard a low cackle. It happened all at one time. I smelled blood, then suddenly I froze. There it was staring down at me with a glassy stare. A vampire, ah, I screamed. I ran down the stairs as fast as I could, but I, Clara, was no match for the vampire's incredible speed. I could see the vampire's sharp teeth and I could see the vampire licking his lips. I screamed again. I thought I ran out the door to get out of the haunted house, but instead I went deeper into the haunted house because that door was the door to the basement. I was sweating like crazy. Suddenly I heard it creak. The vampire said, come out, come out little girl. I want to eat your blood for dinner tonight. Just change it, turn the page, turn the page. Oh, I thought, I'm dead meat, double E. The vampire was cackling so loudly, I thought my eardrums might fall off. Then something caught my eye. I saw a hole that I could just barely fit into, but I was desperate to get as far away as I could from the vampire. I crawled through the sticky, hot tunnel. I knew I'd made a wrong turn because I smelled blood. Oh, no, I said. Then I heard a voice. Who's there? A voice barked. I felt like I was going to faint. Then suddenly it all came together. The vampire who was chasing me wanted me to crawl into the hole, so I couldn't get out because I'd be trapped by vampires or a single vampire. Shhh, Vampirina, you're going to give away the secret. That's excellent writing right there. Really good. Mm. As you can see, there's a lot of eyes in there. And I do particularly like where she says, I Clara. That, that, That really did, that's who she is. That, that's the girl that's being chased is called Clara that's why she did that
2: that is better than Jack Reacher <laughs> <laughs> I'm also wondering
3: if Clara is our actual name in which case well done to Clara Skiandra uh, and thank you very much indeed keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Rory Andy and Steve and to you all for listening we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed
2: Cute. you I was pleased to hear you pronounce Raul Jimenez correctly. because otherwise Grant Wall would have been very upset with you?
3: <laughs> have we had oh, that yeah. conversation we, on air, or have we just I had that so. over text? No,
1: we had it off. No, I think yeah. we had it off oh, air last we had week. It off, yeah. 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 yeah, um, yeah. Thanks, you. We, we we don't want to be in his crosshairs, Hugh. So thanks for getting that right.
2: I I'm, I'm, I I I always feel a bit <laughs> bad when I have a little bit of a pop at Grant on um on Twitter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite him to meet me. I'll buy him dinner in Edinburgh, as soon as he can pronounce it correctly. <laughs> what dinner or Edinburgh? Edinburgh. Because <laughs> oh. Americans and uh, you know, how does he me? pronounce it? Edinburgh is how all Americans. Say Edinburgh. <laughs> Edinburgh. We he had a simpleton. A, we had a... No. We had an American exchange student called Beth, who's lovely, uh, who lived with us when I was a teenager. And uh, she, after a while, referred to Edinburgh as E-City, because we, me and my brother mocked her so mercilessly later <laughs> say it wrong, and sing, just simply refused to say Loughborough. Just could not. Loughborough. Well, I think I, I might have heard an Australian at one point. I don't know if I've made this up, but I think I've heard an Australian refer to it as Luda Baruda. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a dream. That is a definite
1: dream. I mean, in terms of picking on the low-hanging fruit, chinch mocking a nine-year-old's <laughs> grammatical indiscretions is overtaken by Rory uh, taking fire at foreigners, not being able to pronounce it. Yeah, but you oh,
0: see the point I, I was making. Place. At nine, I think it, it should be a little better than that. When I was nine years old, some of the stuff I was writing was just absolutely tremendous. Uh, could
3: you find some of it and prove that, Chinch?
0: And um, uh, I'm you glad want me that... to read from my diaries.
3: <laughs> yes. that's not that's not a, a local radio breakfast show trope at all. Very, very dark places I go to. Very H- dark. How dark? Area. How dark? Is there a vampire there chasing you?
0: It's completely pitch black. With something's pitch black, it's going to be completely pitch black, <laughs> isn't it? it? I don't think you need completely. Again, I wouldn't have made that mistake as a nine-year-old.